Hello, and welcome to the Take is Directed podcast. I'm Steve Morrison, Senior Vice President and Director of the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. We're about to hear part two of our conversation with Dr. Robert Redfield, Director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. In this episode, Dr. Redfield addresses the challenges in combating the ongoing opioid epidemic in America, as well as the dangers of stigma in the midst of a public health crisis. Next week, we're expecting the very broad and comprehensive legislation that's passed both the House and Senate to go to conference and eventually go to the White House for signature. We have the release of the new CDC data, the National Vital Statistics System that shows a disturbing increase through 2017 in opioid overdose deaths. Let's begin by talking about what you think this new data tells us. And where are we in the arc of this epidemic? Well, I think first and foremost, uh, I think we need to recognize that this epidemic, this opioid epidemic, and the broader drug overdose epidemic is the public health crisis of our time. I mean, over 70,000 people died last year, over 49,000 from opioids, but you can see a number of people also died from other overdoses of other drugs. Um, So I do really believe what I just said. It is the public health crisis of our time. I think it's important for people to realize that although it seems complicated, how are we going to be effective in responding because the cases continue to go up. I mean, last year was, I think, in the 60s. This year it's in the 70s. Um, You know, more Americans, 58,000 Americans got killed in Vietnam from 1956 to 1973. We lost 70,000 here. This is a big deal. And I'm reminded of my own experience in the AIDS epidemic back in 81, 82, 83, 84, when all of the patients died and everybody thought we weren't going to get anywhere with this AIDS epidemic. It really brought medical community, those of us who were doctors caring for patients, pretty much to our knees. And you, you look now, 35 years later, you can live a natural lifetime, and science provided solutions. So I do try to let people know, while I say this is the public health crisis of our time, I'm confident that science, like with the AIDS epidemic, will provide the tools to solve it. Mm -hmm. But right now, we're in the middle of a major battle, uh, and it's going to get worse before it gets better, for sure. I think you know that this administration, at the highest level, is committed to uh, a comprehensive response. Obviously, Secretary Azar has listed this as one of his major four pillars for his uh, tour as secretary, and obviously, each of the agencies have a role. CDC has a a role in uh, in the response. Our role has focused on several things. First is to make sure we have accurate data. When I became CDC director and got briefed on this, I got data through 2015. But I looked at my calendar and it was 2018. And I said I didn't realize I was becoming a medical historian. I said I would rather be able to use data to be predictive what's happening. Mm -hmm. And I'm proud to say because of new developments with syndromic surveillance that now are operational in a number of the states uh, and soon all of the states, I think 32 states right now, uh, many of these states now are getting data on drug overdoses that are occurring by being able to exploit electronic medical records and use that as a mechanism of surveillance. Some of the states now are getting data within 48 hours. And CDC is now getting data that they're sharing with me, at least that's curated within, say, four to six weeks. It's a lot better than two years. Because it's very hard to respond if you don't know where the problem is. So now we're getting data in real time. Our second real responsibility was to try to get a handle on 
where are these prescriptions coming? Who's getting these prescriptions? Many of you have probably read some of the stuff that's difficult to believe, how you know, a small town with two pharmacies in a small West Virginia town had 30 million right. tablets and no one seemed to notice, right? Uh, particularly when there's only three distributors. You'd think somebody would have noticed that there's a lot of tablets going to a small town. So now we have a prescription drug monitoring program, which is operational in all but one of the states. Uh, the state of Missouri hasn't done it statewide yet, but uh, St. Louis has uh, coordinated almost over 80% of the districts uh, while the state continues to have their debate of whether they're going to have one worldwide, I mean statewide. But now, um, really within within seconds, a physician that writes a prescription can know how many prescriptions are being written for that patient. And you know, there were some bugs in the system initially that it wasn't sharing across state lines. Mm -hmm. Now 44 of the states now are sharing across state lines, and soon a number of the ones that aren't uh, will be coming on board. I met with the uh, pharmacy board people the other day to see that. So prescription drug monitoring program, very important to get a handle on this. And then third for CDC is to really work on guidelines. I mean, clearly there's uh, over a million individuals that have chronic pain that have dependency for treatment of their pain uh, with opioids. And no one's trying to uh, take that away. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes mm -hmm. the narrative is people are, no, we're not trying to take that away. And that's why the first guidelines we did was the management of chronic pain, right? Now CDC is working hard uh, to go through and try to develop guidelines for the management of acute pain. Turns out, and I'm a physician 35 years, I didn't know this, but when you get a single prescription for an opioid for pain, like you had a wisdom tooth extraction, or your 18-year-old son had a wisdom tooth extraction, or 16-year-old daughter, 2 to 6% of those individuals become chronically dependent. Well, that means this is a very dangerous drug. Right. Some people would even say opioid prescribing for acute pain is one of the most dangerous clinical decisions one person could make. So we want to work really hard to try to find alternatives for treatment of acute pain. You know, we're not trying to come up with alternatives that don't treat acute pain. We're just going to try to come up with alternatives that are effective and treat pain. Uh, one of the areas, for example, is opioid-free surgery. To actually have surgery but not have to be put on opioids to have your surgery. So that's another area we're working hard. Finally, we're trying to also reach out to the American public so they get a better understanding of what I just told you, that you know, getting your pain pill for your sprained ankle uh, may have long-term consequences. There may be a better way to do it. Uh, CDC is also set up to provide some emergency response teams now that we have uh, that we're, in fact, training and coordinating with uh, other federal agencies so that if there is a a raid on a pill mill and we think mm -hmm. there's going to be more problems. We have an augmented team that can go in and help the state health department so they can mm -hmm. respond to the area. So that's kind of our area of this. Clearly trying to help operationalize when someone comes into an emergency room and they have a near-fatal overdose. Figuring out how to link those individuals in real time into clinical care, as you'll talk to more of the role of SAMHSA in getting that. But if I came into an emergency room with accelerated angina, that hospital wouldn't send me home until it had a path. But you come in with a near-fatal overdose in many emergency rooms, you get a piece of paper to go find a doctor. 
right? And one of the programs I saw, and I'd encourage you to go talk to them and highlight the, the program in West Virginia, in Huntington, West Virginia. Unbelievable program. Whole communities come together. Marshall University, the mayor, the health department, all the hospital systems, the police department, they're all together on this. Now, what caused them to finally come together and really develop a program that, in my view, is the best in the country? Because every one of those individuals had either lost or saw some lives, you know, destroyed by this opioid epidemic, similar to what happened in the early years of the AIDS epidemic. When you saw it in the flesh, you, you began to respond. So uh, that's CDC's role. I will come back and just say a, a couple other things that I think are important to say. Like the AIDS epidemic, our ability to respond to this effectively is we really have to look at the subtle ways we stigmatize this disease. I've said before, stigma is the enemy of public health. It really is. I saw it in the AIDS epidemic. People know that in my own family I've confronted uh, this, and one of my own children was ashamed to come talk to us about issues related to this. Well, why should you be ashamed? It's a medical condition. It's not a moral failing. It's a medical condition. But even the word addict is stigmatizing. Even the word, I don't even like the word opioid disorder. No, I, opioid condition. I think we have to be very careful that we don't stigmatize uh, uh, basically the use of uh, opioids or other drugs that really have become a medical condition that needs to be managed as a medical condition. I think there's very many ways we continue to stigmatize this, and just like we learned in the AIDS epidemic, and we haven't finished in the AIDS epidemic, there's still groups of people living with HIV infection who deeply feel stigmatized. Right? We need to take on stigma, and we need to re recognize that stigma is the enemy of public health. It is the enemy of our battle plan to win the opioid epidemic. Can you talk a little bit about the gaps that exist today in terms of treatment? A very small number of folks who need treatment are actually able to access it. The legislation that's coming through is giving treatment a high priority, but there are very complicated issues in terms of financing, expertise, and institutional facilities. Can you also talk about recovery and reentry into employment? I think it's really important. First, I think we have to admit um, where we're at. We don't have the behavioral health system that we need in this nation to provide behavioral health needs of the people of this nation. Much of our opioid and, and drug use uh, crisis in our nation, my own personal opinion, is a lot of people are self-medicating. And they're self-medicating because they're not getting the behavioral medical care that they need. Some of it's historically structural. Many institutions don't have high-quality behavioral health systems that are easy to access. In my own personal family situation, it was a real struggle to find and identify mm -hmm. the care structure we needed. We've had a tendency in society to segregate you know, mm -hmm. uh, medical care for substance use conditions. And we put it off over in a corner, psychiatry, and we let the big health system sort of just say, hey, you know, this isn't our thing. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we got to bring those big health systems back in the game. Again, going back to my AIDS experience, I think we learned a lot. When the AIDS epidemic started, we did not have a health system that was designed to take care of men and women that are living, were living at the time and dying from AIDS. Over time, that was created. It was really helped and accelerated by the Ryan White program, which all the health systems that said they didn't want to get involved, all of a sudden when the federal government put resources in to help people like myself 
be allowed to build health programs in those facilities, they were more accepted because I had the resources and we could build a multi-system uh, to do that, which included in our clinics back then addiction medicine, right? So clearly when you say right now, we need to build the health capacity for behavioral medicine and treating people with addiction. Um, and it should be accelerated. It's going to take you know, strategic investment to do that. I mean, even the decision for medically assisted treatment initially to have only certain psychiatrists could provide methadone. Right? I could prescribe methadone for pain, but I couldn't prescribe it for addiction. I don't think that's in the advantage. When I was a chair of medicine at one of the places in Baltimore, we had an addiction medicine program in medicine because where we wanted to treat addiction was in the HIV clinic or in the diabetes clinic or in the hypertension clinic. Why do I have to send somebody who has an addiction problem to a psychiatry unit where he feels more stigmatized or she feels more stigmatized? And so buprenorphine became a, a breakthrough when all of a sudden regulators allowed us doctors to prescribe buprenorphine, although I would argue we should have been allowed to prescribe methadone. Okay, um, so when you ask, I think clearly there has to be, and I know there will be, I know SAMHSA's working, there's gonna be a significant investment in that structure, and we need it. And it's not just for uh, addiction medicine. You know, we lost 45,000 people committed suicide last year. That's a symptom of a not very effective behavioral medicine capacity. 54% of those people had, quote, no mental illness. Well, no mental illness that was under care, but I'm sure if those individuals committed suicide, a number of them must have had depression or mood swing disorder. And you raise another point, what about reentry? So there's a couple things I wanna say about that. First is success needs to be the rule, not the exception. In my own personal experience, I was uh, informed that I needed to be prepared for relapse after relapse after relapse of my family member because people don't succeed, right? And when you look in the press, no one talks about success. There are some courageous people that have come forward and shared their success. Success is possible. We need to make it the rule. We actually need to make it required at certain levels if we're gonna have these individuals in the clinical business just like we do for surgery. Secondly, you know, I do think uh, the other important part of successful recovery is to give the young men and women that recover, and it is not easy, but it can be the rule. You need to give them the dignity of having a job. It's very difficult to get a job when you come out of recovery. It should be the opposite. These young men and women that succeed and basically get through recovery for six months to a year, society ought to be embracing them to help them get a job. Not a job as a, someone who you know, carries up cases of beer to the bar, but a job, a job that has dignity so they can move on with their life. I think it's an extremely important. The Fortune 500 countries, companies have as much to do with our ability to fight this battle and win against opioids than the medical community. And they've got to get over it and engage these young men and women into productive employment when they do succeed. Thank you very much, Dr. Redfield. That's an excellent point to close on, upbeat and forward-looking. This concludes the two-part series of our conversation with Dr. Robert Redfield. 
I'd like to thank Dr. Redfield for taking time out of his busy schedule to sit down and speak with us about these pressing health issues. We invite you to subscribe to Take As Directed so that you never miss our latest content. And for more information about upcoming events and recent publications, please visit the CSIS.org Global Health Policy Center program page. Thank you.